How are we doing, Cherish? Doing good? Just puts you in a good mood to look at little babies, doesn't it? And then all of us that have kids that are older than that, we go, oh, that's not us anymore. Hey, uh, um, a couple little, little housekeeping before we get going. Uh, we got a new addition to our staff family. Uh, Walker Day is on staff, and he and his wife, Rachel, had a baby named Walker Beckham Day. Little Walker Beckham was born on 5 17 15. He weighed 8 pounds and was 20 and one half inches long. And where I'm from, that's called a keeper. All right, so that's good. An 8 pounder, you want to brag on that. Also, I want to brag on you a little bit because uh, in this series, Give Love a Try, we kind of took a little shift last week talking about since God loves us, therefore we are to love one another. And one of the ways we were going to love our community is by uh, joining together with Feed Northeast Florida. And you, we together as a church family, Last weekend, donated 8,728 pounds of food, all right? Over 8,000 pounds of food. And you're like, well, how much is that? That's 7,274 meals that you will provide for uh, under-resourced children in our community. That's great. And 8,728 pounds is about the size of a baby blue whale. So it doesn't sound very appetizing, but that's how big it is, all right? So way to go. And then also, also, I love this time of year. Don't you love this time of year, Memorial Day weekend? It kind of more, I don't know what the official beginning of summer is, but for all of us regular Americans, it's right now. It's when, you know, the beaches are full and white people change color and the sun's out and the days are longer and all of that. But it's not just a time for you to get the day off and, and have a cookout. Memorial Day is a really big deal because if it were not for those men and women in uniform, we could not gather without fear in Jesus' name right now. And so, yes. So know this. So if, if you are in the military, if you've ever served in the military, if you've had a family member give their life in the military, any of the above, would you just please stand up right here so we could honor you? Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. We say thank you. Please remain standing. Please remain standing. We just want to extend this just a little bit too. Also, the men and women that put on a uniform that serve us and put their lives in harm's way for on our behalf, like firemen or rescue folks or police officers. If you would also stand, if we have any of you here, because here's what I just know. Yeah, give those folks a hand too. Because we live in a world, especially our country and with our just current social system that does not know how to honor well. And at the church of 1122, you hold a position of honor. And we would not be allowed to gather in here and worship Jesus freely without men and women like you. And, and we thank God for men and women like you. And we understand that God placed you in the positions that he placed you. And that you literally have been answers to prayer. That people in, in, here in Florida and in Jacksonville and literally to the ends of the earth, they cried out, God, please help us. And God said, I hear that prayer and I answered it. And one of you showed up. And so we honor you. We love you. We appreciate you. You will always be honored at the Church of 1122, regardless of what the rest of the world does. And so thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So if you got your Bibles, and I hope you do, we're going to be in 1 John. We're still there. We're in our seventh week of this series. 1 John chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 28. And we're going to go through chapter 3, verse 10. If you're new to Bible study, 1 John's way towards the back. If you get to the maps, hang a left. And, and uh, if you get to a book that's got dragons and stuff in it, you went too far. Okay, 1 John is where we're going to be. It's right in front of 2 John, all right? And so um, it starts out this way. Chapter 2, verse 28 says, And now... And what he's talking about there, he's talking about Pastor Britt's sermon from last week, okay? I wasn't here because me and my family, we were at Disney. I'll tell you more about that later. Uh, but it says, and now, what he's saying is based on the previous chapter that he just wrote in chapter 2, he, he's, he's talking about what the whole book here is about. The whole book of 1 John is about this word that we call assurance. Assurance of your salvation. You could be assured of your salvation, not based on what you do, but based on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. In fact, in chapter 5, I think it's verse 13, John tells us why he writes the book of John. He says, I write these things to you that believe in Jesus that you may know that you have eternal life. That John wants you to know whether you're a Christian or not. And so the whole point of the book is that the assurance of your salvation is in the finished work of Jesus Christ, not in your current performance and how well you're doing or not doing. And so <clears throat> last week, one of the things Pastor Britt was talking about, it was an incredible sermon, I listened to it on my way home, and... Um, one of the things that he talked about is his, is his insecurity in his salvation when he was growing up. Uh, like many of us here, he's a recovering Baptist, and he did not have assurance of his salvation. He thought, he continued to think there had to be something that he had to do to make sure that he was a Christian. That's why he said he got saved like 900 times. You can't actually get saved 900 times. 
You can't lose your salvation. Your salvation is not your car keys because you didn't save you. God saved you and he didn't lose anything. And so what he was saying is that, that anytime somebody gave him some kind of action step to, to make sure that he knew that he knew that he knew that he was in, he would take it. So he raised his hand and he checked cards and he'd get baptized over and over and over and he'd whatever. But the reality is, it, this is, I thought this was brilliant when he said this, he had to stop asking Jesus into his heart and believe the gospel that he gives you a new heart. You see, it wasn't about how well you were doing and trying to be a good Christian. It's about what Christ had done for you on the cross. And then he told us that, that God's design and ideal for us is to move us into intimacy. But the evil one or the antichrist wants us to move, move us into isolation. And one of the great things that happened last week, literally hundreds of you took a step towards intimacy by taking a step towards community. And hundreds of people signed up for either disciple groups or coaching disciple groups or joining serve staff or becoming covenant members or moving towards baptism. A whole bunch of you are going to get baptized next month when we go out to the beach. And so that's what he's talking about when he says, and now. And now, because of that, because your salvation it rests in the finished work of Jesus and not how well you're performing now, he says, and now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears... We may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Now, all throughout the book of 1 John, he's going to call us little children. And here's why I think he calls us little children. Because, not that you're like childish, some of us are, but, but because little children have a confidence and an assurance in who their dad is. And what John wants us to get around in our mind is that God is not just the eternal judge and king that's out to get you, but if you're in Christ, if you've surrendered your life to the lordship of Christ, then Jesus is your brother and God Almighty is your dad. And that you don't have to make an appointment with your dad. That you have assurance that your dad loves you. And you have, you have the assurance of the availability to your dad. See, at the end of every single service, in an effort for me to just be available to our church, since we can't all hang out together, except on beach baptism day, we can all be there together and eat fried chicken and high five and surf, and the waves are always good when we baptize. And so, other than that, so what I do, since we can't hang out all the time, at the end of every service, I just wait down front. For whatever reason, some people want to come say hi. Listen, you'll be very underwhelmed, I promise, okay? I've lived with me my whole life. It's not that awesome. But if somebody wants to meet me, that's great. But you know who does not have to stand in line? You don't know who doesn't have to make an appointment, who does not have to check with anybody? My kids. So at the end of this service, if my kids walk into the worship center and I'm standing right here, they can just beeline right past everybody. Why? Because you don't have to make an appointment with dad. You get to walk right up to dad. Now, we are trying to teach them manners. We don't, I don't want to be rude to you either. And so they walk up and they just put their hand on me. And when I'm ready, then I say, what do you, what do you need? You know? And we go eyeball to eyeball with our kids. The same thing is true of you and your heavenly father. That you don't need a mediator. Christ is your mediator. You don't have to go through me to have access to God. That, that he's like your, he's your dad. And so, and now, little children, he says this, so abide in him. We don't use that language often except in church. Abide means to stay close. We've talked about this for a few weeks. So the way you stay close is you, you put yourself in those kind of environments that stir your affections for the Lord. There's two things the Bible talks about when it talks about abide. It says abide in his word. It's why we make a big deal about the Bible around here. It's why we study the Bible in church. It's why we study the Bible in your disciple group. It's not why we just get together and just talk about stuff, drink some coffee, say a prayer at the end and call it a disciple group. But we abide in his word so we'll know what his word for us is. And we also abide in him. That means anything that stirs your affections for the Lord. That could be walks on the beach for you. That could be Bible study. That could be listening to worship music. It could be what, serving the poor, whatever it is. And you need to do those things. You see, as a good dad, I abide with my kids. I mean, this weekend, we were abiding on the couch. You know what that means? Is that we don't have three separate seats. I sit in the middle, and they sit on me. And we watch the Braves beat Tampa Bay. That's what we did. And, and Jesus' half-brother James says this, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. You know what that means? As soon as my kids, I've got a nine-year-old and a five-year-old, as soon as they begin to make their way up into my lap, then I do the rest. I grab them and I suck them in. And you know why? Because they're nine and they're five. And I've heard rumors that when they're 19 and 15, they might not want to. Whatever. I'll take it as long as I can get it. See, we're just abiding. And so he says, now, little children, abide in him. And here's why. So that. So that when he appears, we may have a confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Now, it's not talking about his first coming. 
When Jesus came the first time, he was eight pounds, six ounce, little baby Jesus in swaddling clothes, sovereign God in little chubby cheeks. You've heard about him in the Talladega Nights, okay? It's all very true. But when he comes back, he's not coming back as a cute little baby that we pum-pum-pum-pum to. He's going to come as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He's going to crack heaven open, and he's showing up on a horse, guess what, with tattoos. Take that, Baptist, okay? That's what it says. That's what it says. It says, it says, Lord of Lord, King of Kings and Lord of Lords will be written on his thighs. I'm pretty sure it's not a Sharpie, okay? So be like Jesus, get a tattoo. That's what I did. But when he comes back, this is just true. This is just true about every single one of us. That God is first in all of our lives. That you don't make God first. God is first. The reality is, is for some of us, he's first as Savior. But for some of you, he'll be first as Judge. And every single one of us, on the day he returns, we will bow before him. For those of us that bow our knee before him, before Judgment Day, then, then we receive forgiveness and grace and mercy. And we're adopted into his family. But if you don't, if you, if you shun him now and say, hey, I don't need you, I've got this on my own, then the Bible says that you are going to shrink from him in shame at his coming because in that moment you will stand condemned. So you will bow or you will bow. Those are your options. Here's what it reminds me of. This past, uh, two or three years ago, a friend of mine took me to Rio. We went down to Brazil. We were setting up some mission trips, and, and we do that now. We do mission trips there. And we planted a church in Cadot, Brazil. You know, we'll continue to go back. We're going to plant a bunch in the next few years. And so while we were in Rio, we're touring all the stuff and go to the beach and whatever. But the one thing I wanted to see was the Christ, Christ the Redeemer. You know, big Rio Jesus that you see in all the pictures and everything. And so we get on a bus and we ride up the mountain. And the cool thing about, about the Christ is you can see him everywhere in the city. And at night, they put a big light on him and he glows and he stands over the city with his arms outstretched. And so I just kind of wanted to go because it seems like the thing to do. You know, it's like going to New York, you, you got to see certain things there. Well, you go to Rio, you got to see big Jesus. And so we go. And we go up the mountain and then you get off the bus and then you hike and go and go and it's step after step after step. I don't know if you can tell this, but this ain't really built for steps. You know what I'm saying? So we get to the top, I'm, I'm out of breath and I'm not really paying attention to everything that's going on. And then I, I walk around to the feet of Rio Jesus. And here he is. I got a picture of him here. He's 125 feet tall. And he's enormous, enormous. And you see in that picture, you see how the little itty bitty people, that, I was one of those little itty bitty people, and you're standing there. And it's beautiful. I mean, you're up at top, you're looking down on the city, and you can see the coast and the city and the beach and all of that. And at first, you know, I'm not taking it very serious, and I'm like taking selfies with me and big Jesus and like whatever. And then at one point, I turn around and I look up, and, and a couple of things got me. There were people from all over the world there, every tribe and every tongue and every nation, and people are speaking all kind of different languages. And I look up, and there's a 125-foot stone Jesus with his arms stretched out, and and I look at him, and I just, I've never felt so small in my life. I mean, first of all, you're up on top of this mountain, and then this huge Jesus. And the way they have him set up is he's looking down over the, at the city, but when you look up, you feel like he's just looking at you like, hey, I see you, you know? I mean, I know what you've been doing. And, and here's what I know. That there will come a day when every one of us will stand before the great and mighty King Jesus, and he will be infinitely bigger than, than the 125-foot rock Jesus that's in Rio. And yet, here's the thing I could not get out of my head, is that I know what I deserve, and I know what he is capable of, and when I'm standing there, I'm not even as big as his big toe. I mean, I'm standing, the big toe was right there, I could see it, all right? Just the toenail of Jesus is right there. And I'm standing, and I know because of my sinfulness, because of my depravity, because of my selfishness, because of what I know goes on in here, what I deserve in that moment is for big stone Jesus to unhitch his foot and say, here you go, and that's it. And yet, because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, on that day of judgment, when I stand before him, he's going to open his mouth, and out of his mouth is not going to come condemnation, but out of his mouth, I am confident of this, that I'm going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Even though he has the power to squish me in a second, I'm going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, not because of anything that I've done, but because of what he has done on the cross. And he's going to be infinitely bigger than that statue and if you're in Christ, if you're a child of God, that's what you get. You don't get the judgment and you don't get the condemnation. What you get is you get grace poured out like a little child. So and now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Verse 29. And if you know that he is righteous... 
you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. This is very important. Notice the order. That new birth precedes new behavior and not the other way around. That new birth comes first, okay? When you're reborn, then there's a new person. And with the new person, there's new behavior and not the other way around. So many people think that if we act righteous, then that gives us a right standing with God. Eh, that's not the gospel. That, that, that makes you think that you have done something to earn your salvation. And the Bible says that we're saved by grace through faith, not of works. The works that save us is the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross, not your own work. Chapter 3, verse 1. He says, see, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. Listen to this, church. If you are in Christ, if you're a Christian, if you've surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ, regardless of what you've done, regardless of what you're even doing, if that's you, if you've trusted him for your salvation and not your own good works, then guess what? You're a child of God right now. That you and I are children of God. See what manner of love the Father has given us that we would be called children of God and that's what we are. You know what that means? That means that nothing else in this world gets to tell you who you are. Nothing else gets to define you. That your economic status does not define you. That your political affiliation does not define you. That your past does not define you. That your divorce does not define you. That your orientation does not define you. That your current struggle with sin does not define you. That your addiction does not define you. That where you're from does not define you. That where you're going does not define you. But what defines you is Jesus defined you, defines you because he bought you and he paid for you. And if he's your dad and we are his kids, then he gets to tell you who you are. And, and this is crazy. And he loves you. Like a good dad loves his kids even when they don't deserve it, especially when they don't deserve it. This might be hard for you to get your mind around. It is for me. That when God looks at you, if you're in Christ, he really digs you. I mean, like if I were to go up to God right now and be like, hey, you know Ted, you know, surrendered to Jesus 10 years ago? God, about you, would say, yeah, I really like that guy. But much, like, much like parents that take their kids to t-ball, delight over their t-ball ability. You know what I'm talking about. Or some of you took your kids to soccer, right? They couldn't do anything else. You'd be like, hey, go do soccer. And they go running out on a soccer field, and what happened? Come on, let's just be honest, all right? It's, at that point, four-year-old soccer is not a sport. It's like bees on honey. It's just a big swarm of little kids just adorned by their parents. Oh, look at Timmy. He didn't fall down. Yay, Timmy. He tries to kick it. He does fall down. But look how good he got up. I think he's really good. He's not that good. He's just your kid. Look, I get you. When we did t-ball, man, like we're in all-star baseball, so that matters. But, man, in t-ball, as long as the kids put the underwear on the inside and the pants on the outside, we were like, he's a prodigy. He's such a good kid. I mean, we just have kids up there for hours just hacking down the tea like they were chopping firewood. And what do you do? You just give kids, try again, JP. Try again, JP. And then finally, he'd hit it. The bat would go farther than the ball. And you'd be like, look at my boy. It's like Babe Ruth. No, he's not. He's horrible, but it doesn't matter. Why? Because he's your kid. That's how God the Father sees you. And, and, and that means that our identity is not wrapped up in our public successes nor our private defeats. It's not. I have to remind myself of this every single weekend. Do you know what happens this weekend? Regardless of what you think about me, regardless of what you think about this sermon, regardless of whether it's a good one or not, you know what my Father in Heaven does? He gets really excited to hear me preach. That before I walk out here, God leans over and is like, oh, I love to hear him preach. And the angels might go, really? Because he's not that good. And God would go, I know, I know, he's terrible. But he's my kid. That's my kid. Watch. Right? That's how it goes every single time that God delights in his children. God is not dissatisfied in you. Why? Because Jesus is the propitiation for your sin. I know it's a big word, but so is caramel macchiato. Okay, you can remember it. Propitiation means a payment that satisfies. And since the payment of Christ on the cross satisfied the wrath of God, that means God can no longer be dissatisfied in you. That means he's satisfied in you. Think about this. God, your father, he's got a picture of you on his fridge in heaven. He does. He's like, that's my boy. That's my girl. And the angels probably walk by and be like, I don't, what do you see in him? They're crooked. They're depraved. And God goes, nah, not the way I see it. 
not through the gospel lens that I have, through the, through the atoning sacrifice of my son, Jesus. They're holy, and they're blameless. And the angel's like, but what are they good at? Nothing. Shut up. It's my kid. You've been here the whole time. You don't understand. They were once dead, and now by what I did in Christ, they are alive. This is a big deal. That's you. That you're a child of God. Now, here's the deal. We, we use, when we study the Bible here at 1122, we use the ESV, the English, English, stand, can't say English, English Standard Version, all right? ESV. But the nerds that write the ESV, I like it best because it uses words like propitiation and expitiation and substitutionary atonement and words like that, and I like that because it's important. But sometimes the guys are so trying to be precise that, 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 that sometimes I think they lose kind of the heartbeat behind the verse. And the first time I ever read 1 John 3, 1, um, it was in the NIV, and so I put the NIV in your notes. I want you to look at it. And some of you that are new to Bible study, you're like, huh, what's KJV and NIV and ESV? You know, I know Run DMC and the DMV and Snoop Double G, but I don't, what are we talking about? It's just different, different translations of the same Bible. So here's, here's the New International Version, chapter 3, verse 1. Listen to this. It says, see, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we, I mean, look around this room real quick. Look. <laughs> Look at what a big dysfunctional mess of people we are. That we would be called the children of God. And that is what we are. And the word that I like that the NIV uses here is lavish. Is lavish. Here's what lavish means. Just straight out of the you know, Google dictionary. Here's what it means. Lavish means sumptuously rich. I'm uncomfortable even saying the word sumptuously here. I don't even know what that means. But it sounds delightful. Sumptuously rich elaborate or luxurious, to bestow something on in generous or extravagant qualities, to give freely, to spend generously, to heap on, to shower with. Like if we use the word lavish now, we almost use it uh, in a derogatory way. Like that guy lives such a lavish lifestyle. He spends money that he doesn't need to spend. He buys stuff that he doesn't even need. You know, who needs, who needs rims like that that don't move while they're moving? What is that, okay? And God would go, yep, yep. That's how I love my kids. I just lavish my love upon them. I mean, I just pour my love upon them. It's almost like I waste love and grace and mercy because I don't give them just what they need to get into heaven, but I just keep pouring it and pouring it and pouring it, and I don't care where it goes. It can spill out all over the place. I don't care. I just want to heap or lavish or just dump truck my kids with my love. That's what I want. See, it's, it's sort of like, it, it reminds me of this, especially the, the shower part, um, I don't know if you've been on a mission trip with us, but um, it's kind of changed now a little bit when we go to Africa. But when we used to go in the beginning, some of the places that we would stay didn't have any running water at all. So when it was time to bathe, they would bring you your bath in a jerry can, about two and a half gallons of water. And that was your water for the day. Not to drink, I would kill you, but just to like bathe with and that kind of stuff. And so they bring it to you early in the morning. And where we stayed in this one particular place, there was no running water, but you had a toilet in your room. And that was an upgrade, because in most places it was just a hole, so at least this was a, you know, this was like a little throne. It was great. But they didn't have running water, so not only did you have to use this limited amount of water to bathe yourself, but you couldn't just let it go. You had to recapture it in this little tub so that you could pour it in the back of your toilet and get your one flush a day. So you have to be extremely careful as to what you do with this water. And so when it was time to bathe, you didn't bathe in Africa with limited amount of water like you bathe here. You didn't just get in there and just dump the whole jug on you because then it's over. You would just kind of put just enough to get just wet enough to bathe. And you even had to strategically decide what parts of you you were going to clean that day. Let that run through your mind for a little while here in church, okay? Yeah, that's what you did. And then when, the, when you did try to wipe off the suds or what little bit of soap sud you could get going, you had to capture all the water in this little basin and then step out of it and save that water, again, to pour in the back of your toilet so you could get your one flush a day, mostly for the sake of your roommate. And that's what you did. And you had just enough. And the reason that you were so strategic in the limited amount of water is because the water was limited. You rationed out your water because you had a limited supply of water. And you couldn't ask for more water because some 10-year-old girl walked two miles and carried it back for you on your head. And so, you know, you didn't want to be a wuss asking for more water. That's what you did. But now think about the way you showered today before church. And if some of you are like, well, I didn't shower. We know who you are. But for the rest of us, <laughs> how do you shower at home? Do you ration out the water? No, you shower like a good red-blooded American. You walk in there and you crank it on. And do you just get in? No. 
You walk around for a little while, you're letting it get to the exact right temperature. You get some of the other things right. And, and I know when it's time, because in my bathroom, my bathroom is 19 degrees colder than the rest of my house. I don't know how that happens. And I don't want to be cold in there. And so I wait until the steam begins to make its way down. There's a certain level when the Holy Spirit tells me it's time to go, and the steam makes it down in the mirror. And that's when I step in, and then it's too hot, right? So you've got to turn it down. And then what do you do usually? You just stand there and just waste it. I know you do. And if you're a conservationist, awesome, all right? Pray for me. But I just stand there and spend time with Jesus. Don't you have some of your best thoughts there? And then sometimes you sing, right? Get warmed up. Oh, I'm going to be really good today in church, all right? And you sing a little bit. And then, and then sometimes, here, here's how we, we just kind of take that, that flow of water for granted so much. You ever in the shower? I, I mean, I don't even have hair, and I think this. You're standing in the shower. You're about to get out, and you go, hold on. Did I wash my hair? I mean, there's only two steps in the shower. There's wash your body and wash your hair. And then what do you do? Well, I don't know if I did or not, but might as well. And then you go for it again. And you lather up and lavish it upon you. And then when you get out, there's water all over the place. Why? Because, at least from our perspective, there's an unlimited supply of water. Therefore, you can just lavish the water all over you. And if it goes somewhere else, whatever. God is saying this. I've got an unlimited supply of love that I just want to lavish on you and pour on you and dump on you and heap on you and just over and over and over and over behold or see what great love the father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are second half of that verse and the reason the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know him because what happens when that love is lavished upon you and you receive the love of God, you become a child of God. And essentially what he's saying here is this. The reason that the world thinks you're weird is because the world thought he was weird. The reason that the world doesn't recognize you is because it didn't recognize him. And check this out. And if you're in Christ, you're becoming like your dad. You're growing up to be just like your dad. I know teenagers, you feel like that's, that's supposed to be good news and you feel like that's bad news. But let me tell you your future. Look at your mom and daddy. That's your future. And as a 41-year-old man, I can remember when I was 15 years old, and I thought, hey, it ain't never happening to me. Too late, baby. I am there. I am Perry Martin personified. This is it. I am my dad. All of the things I promised that I would never, ever do seem to make so much sense to me now. I walk into rooms in my house, and there's nobody in there, and the lights are on, and I will say out loud for the whole house here, anybody in this room? I know they're all in the living room, but I'm just Perry Martin, and that's what he did, and I thought it was dumb. That makes sense. Or... JP won't ever close the door. And I'm like, JP, you have to close the door. And he says, well, Jesus was born in a barn, so I'm going to leave the doors open to him. I'm like, no. Jesus didn't have an AC bill, okay? You can't call that on this. And so I will walk out. What do I do? The door's wide open. I go, guess we're going to air condition the whole neighborhood, right? Oh, there it is. I am my dad. So many of those things. You know, I'll, I'll even catch a glimpse in a mirror sometimes, and I'll see it. It must have kind of my gut. And I'm like, what's my dad doing? Oh, no, that's me. The reality is, is that, that I, have the, I have the DNA of Perry Martin, therefore I am becoming like him. If you're in Christ, you have the DNA of God in you, and you're growing up to be like your dad. Now this is good news. It, it, if you want to write in your notes or out beside your Bible, you could write this word, these two words, progressive sanctification. That's what theologians call that process, progressive sanctification. That over time, not overnight, but over time, little by little, you're going to be more and more and more like your brother Jesus. You're growing up to be like God. In, in fact, some of you, some of you recently have been surprised by your progressive sanctification, haven't you? You know you have. Some of you this morning, you were in church today, and you're singing, and then before you know it, you're like, I'm like one of them. You are. For the very first time, you're like, I can't believe it. Or you'll be at work and somebody will start gossiping. And instead of gossiping, you literally pray for somebody. You're like, we shouldn't talk about her. Why don't we pray? And you're like, who is this? It's like I'm possessed. Some of you have done that. Or three years ago, you never in a million years would have ever thought you'd be part of a church. We thought it was crazy. A church? Are you kidding me? And you went from attending once to surrendering life to Jesus, and now, now you're a disciple group leader. And, and your, your friends and family are like, who are you? And you're like, I don't know. I'm becoming like this whole new person. That's actually what's happening. That you are being, you are becoming more and more and more like God in His Son, Jesus Christ, over and over and over. 
And that's why the world didn't recognize him and it doesn't recognize you. Verse 2, beloved, beloved. All throughout 1 John, that's a title that John refers to us by, beloved. But what if you heard it as a command? What if you split those words up and you heard it as a command? That the way that you receive that status, beloved, is to be loved. Quit trying to earn it and just be loved. That God's got this dunk truck full of love that he wants to lavish out on you. And all you got to do is just be loved. To just receive it. To quit trying to do it on your own and just understand it is finished. In the finished work of Christ on the cross that you could just be loved. So beloved, we are God's children. When? Now. You get that? That you're, If you're in Christ, that we are God's children now. Not once we get it all together. Not once we go on a mission trip. Not once we sponsor a kid. Not once we get our act together. Not once we quit cussing so much. Not once we get off drugs. That if you are in Christ, then we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we will know that when he appears, we shall be like him. That's like Jesus because we shall see him as he is. So that means if you are a son or a daughter of God, then you are becoming more and more and more like Jesus. And here's the thing. It might take a little while. Just like our kids. Have you ever seen your kids grow? No. No, I remember I used to get in a lot of trouble early on, right, when my kids first came home from the hospital and I would have to watch them. And, and just if you're a new dad, don't call watching your own kids babysitting. For whatever reason, it offends mama, but whatever. So there I was. And then Gretchen would go out and do something, and she would come back, and she'd be like, so how'd it go? I was like, eh, it's okay. So what do you mean? I'm like, well, nothing happened. It's like, what? Yeah, I mean, I'm watching him for hours. Nothing. I mean, no, he didn't grow. He didn't learn anything. He didn't say anything to me. He's just kind of there. And so if you were to just take that little slice of time, you, you could come to the conclusion, hey, babe, I think something's broke. Ours doesn't work. Like, nothing's, nothing is happening. And, but, but what we know now, nine years later, is that he is growing. Sometimes it just takes a little while. I mean, think about it. Especially if you're going to be with your kid, like, all summer long. You, you never just wake up one day and realize that they're bigger. It's just over time that you realize that, man, a lot has happened over that time. You know, you ever do the little growth chart at home? Right? And so you measure your kid at the beginning of the summer, and then again, you're with them all summer, and you don't really notice. It's not, like, it's not like one day they just walk out, you know, like the movie Big back in the day. It's not like that. But yet at the end of the summer, you go on that growth chart, you're like, oh my goodness, you're like six inches. Or for anybody that travels, you ever go out of town, you don't see your kid just for like seven days, and you come home, you're like, who are these mammoth children, baby? What are you feeding the kids? All right? It's the steroids in the chicken breast or something, but they're huge. That's what's happening to us. That you might not feel like this incredible amount of progressive sanctification has been happening in you, but I'm telling you, if Christ is in you on God's growth chart, you are moving up the ladder. It be, won't be long, and you can even ride the big boy rides, okay? You are getting there. That's what this means, that you are children now. And what will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall be see, we shall see him as he is. Verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So this progressive sanctification, here's what it is. It's this constant purification process of you. And to make something pure is just to get the impurities out. And um, anybody ever had your ears clean? You ever do that? It's the gross thing ever. All right. I thought it was just like a phrase my teachers used, but I went to the doctor, uh, and they were like, oh, they looked at my ears, and you know, they were like, oh, this is terrible. What's going on? She goes, you need to clean out your ear. Like, I've heard that my whole life. I didn't know it was like, actually a process. She's like, sure. And so sure enough, do you know how they clean them out? They don't dig in there to get the bad stuff out. They take this little solution in this like super soaker 9000, and, and it's, it's hydrogen peroxide and like grain alcohol or something, and they just squirt it into your head. It's like, <laughs> you go, it's kind of loud. Yeah, it's in your ear, all right? That's going on. And while this pure substance is just forcing itself in, guess what? The impurities are flushed out. And don't ask to look what comes out of your head. It is gross. I'm telling you, it's gross. And you're like, that was in my head? They're like, uh-huh. Listen, that's what's happening as you're being sanctified in Christ. Like today, when you showed up to church today, and you positioned yourself in a way to worship God and receive the word, you know what begins to happen? That the pure spirit of God is just flushed in you to a point where there are some impurities, some gross stuff that you didn't even know was in there and in here. And it gets flushed out of your life. 
So the idea here is to not wake up every day and be focused on your struggles and focused on your impurities and focused on the bad things, but to be focused on not what you can do for God, but to get focused on what Christ has done for you. That the pure gospel would drive into your life and drive those impurities out. Verse 4. Now this is the part where it can get really, really confusing. Okay? Verse 4. It says, Everyone, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. Underline that part. We'll come back to it. To take away sins. And in him, there is no sin. And no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. To, now, if you, if you take the Bible seriously at this point, you might go, uh-oh, because I keep on sinning. And listen, I will be the first to admit, I think I'm in him, I am saved by grace, and I keep on sinning. Like I told you before, I went to Disney last week, okay? There was some sin in me, I promise. I mean, I, I, it's crazy. I, I, I'm, I'm not a very nice person, but I, I feel like I'm a grace-filled, gospel-centered person. But when I go to Disney, I can get really, really judgmental really, really quick. You ever do that? I walk around that place and I think, how in the world is an industry built around walking attract so many people that so rarely walk? You know what I mean? They're just every, and they're always in line in front of me, all right? And I can look at other children, people's kids just acting a fool and I think, what is wrong with those parents? You know what I mean? And I also get so frustrated with my own kids. I take them to Disney to lavish my love upon them, spend all kind of money. You know, why else would you go to Disney? Grown people that go to Disney, cuckoo. All right, there's only one reason, to lavish love on your kid. And when my kids aren't as grateful as I think they should be, like, they should bow down and say, thank you, Dad, for the ostrich leg that you just bought us. And I'm like, if you don't eat all of it, you know, I'd just go crazy. And so I can look at my own sin and then look at this and go, whoa, how do the, what do you do about this? Well, it's really, really important. Language here is very important. I love the way the ESV translates it. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning, makes a practice of sinning. So in Greek, the word there to sin, it's present tense, which means to sin and keep on sinning. So the ESV translates it, makes a practice of sinning. Here's what this means. Anybody, regardless of what you say you believe, that continually, habitually, and unrepentantly sins, doesn't know Jesus. Like you can't simultaneously say, Jesus, you're my Lord and commander. And then look at the commands of Jesus and say, I don't, you can say whatever you want to say, but I'm going to do what I want with who I want when I want. Now, I'm going to go to your church sometimes. I believe that you existed. I might even sing your songs and tip you on the way out. But, but I'm not doing what you told me to do. Then what John would say and what Jesus would say in other places is this. Then that's not what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a Christian, to surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ, means that you do not walk in sin. But it doesn't mean that we are perfect, but there is progress, that you're, being perf- that you're being perfected. And there's a difference between walking unrepentantly in sin, saying, I am the boss of me, and for those of us that would say we're Christians, like every single one of us, and we stumble and we fall. But when we stumble and we fall into sin, we do not run from God, we run to him. And we say, I know I can't do this on my own. And so I fall on the same grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ here as when I did when I surrendered my life to Christ. And I confess my sins to you, and I repent, and I know that you've already saved me. And now by your help, there will be times where I overcome sin, and there will be times where I stumble and fall again. But I know that I need you in this, and that's the difference. That Jesus did not come just to cover over sin, but it says right here, in order to take away sins, not cover them up, but to take them away. And so at the cross, when Jesus Christ says, it is finished, he was talking about the sin in our lives, and that that Jesus came to to take away the penalty of sin, that happens at justification. When you surrender your life to Christ, you no longer have the penalty eternally for your sin. He also came came to take away the power of sin. That's called sanctification. That over time, not overnight, but over time, you have the Holy Spirit in you and sin has no power over you anymore. And he also came to take one day away the very presence of sin. That's called glorification. So do you realize that if you're justified, you're being sanctified, and no matter what, one day you will be glorified. And for every person that's in Christ, one day you will never struggle with sin again. It won't even be a thought or a problem or a struggle because the very presence of sin will be taken away from us. That's called heaven. And so what this means is not that Christians are perfect, but that we, that we are not rebelling against God saying, I'm the boss of me, that when we do stumble and fall, that we've got one that pleads our case 
and he pleads his own righteousness and not our right deeds. Verse 7. says, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness as he is righteous. Okay, here's what you've got to understand. We get, this, we get this backwards all the time, okay? Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. The order matters. The order matters. The Bible says that God made him who was without sin to be sin for us, that we would be made his righteousness. So if you become a Christian, if you surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ, that he, gets, he takes the full penalty for your sin, and we get full credit for his perfect righteousness. That's why when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness, the holiness, and the blamelessness of his son Jesus. That in you is righteousness. And so what he's saying is, is that if there's no righteousness coming out of you, then guess what? Maybe there's no righteousness in you. I say it this way. If you say you're a Christian, but nothing has changed, nothing has changed on the outside, you've got to be honest that maybe it's because nothing has changed on the inside. I've used this illustration over and over and over, but it's the best one I can think of. Okay, here's a water bottle. If I shake this up, what comes out of it? Water, okay, I know there's always somebody who's like, Jesus, no, it's water. Because water's in here, so water comes out. That's what he's saying. If you put your faith in Jesus, then the Spirit of God is in here. And it's from the inside out, not the outside in. See, order here matters. That whoever makes a practice of sinning, that means just habitually, unrepentantly sinning, saying, hey, I'm the boss of me. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Notice the order. It's new birth that leads to new behavior, not the other way around. It's new birth that leads to new people, which leads to new new behavior. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning. Because he has been born of God. By this is it's evident. All right, so here's some evidence of what it looks like to be a Christian. By this it is evident. Who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Again, in other words, if there's there's no evidence that something in your life is changing, then you have to ask yourself the legitimate question, did something on the inside change? Jesus, Jesus addresses this in Luke chapter 6, 43 to 45. Jesus says this, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from bramble bush. Verse 45, The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of the evil treasure, treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. You've heard this before, right? You can tell a tree by its fruit. So in other words, what what John is saying is this. John is saying, see what manner of love the Father has lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God. That is an inside-out endeavor, not an outside-in endeavor. It's not like you act like children, and if you act like his children long enough, then he'll adopt you into the family. It's the other way around, that you put your faith in Jesus Christ, and then you're like a newborn baby in his family. You get his DNA, and over time, not overnight, then you begin to grow to be more and more and more like him. Here's the point. That righteous deeds that rightly reflect reflect a relationship with God come only as a result of our right standing with him through Christ's death and resurrection. Let me explain it this way, because I don't want you to miss this. We have props, all right? So here's how a lot of people wrongly look at what it means to be a Christian and to act like it. There's so many people that think, okay, in order to be a Christian, here's what I've got to have. I've got to have evidence of Christianity. And depending on what kind of tradition you grew up in, the evidence or the fruit of Christianity will look different. Again, I've told you this a million times. Where I'm from, it was a good Christian doesn't drink or smoke or chew or go with girls who do. Okay, that was it. Problem is, those are always the best girls. But that's a different story. Okay, so. So what we try to do is be a good Christian. Try to do sin management. And we try to do the kind of things that whatever the preacher or the priest or whoever, whatever tradition we grew up in, tells us that you're supposed to do. So we try to do good things with our money. We try to do good things with our mouth, quit saying bad words, you know, or make up our own Christian cuss words, you know, or whatever it is, son of a biscuit, whatever it is, you know, instead of the real ones. And then, and then we try to do these things, or, and, and we, we, don't, we not only try to quit doing the bad stuff, but we start trying to do the good stuff. 
We try to attend church most of the time, unless it's like Memorial Day weekend or it's a good game on. Or, you know, we do those things. And then we take these good deeds and we try to hang them onto this life of ours and be like, see? See how well I'm doing? Look how impressive this is. Look how bright and shiny my fruit is. I mean, look at this tree of life. Here's the problem. This is all fake. Like, this is a totally fake banana. It's not even real. You know why we had to do fake? Here's the real one we hooked on Thursday. It's doing horrible. You know why? Because it's detached from the source of life. And the crazy thing is, for so many people, this is works-based righteousness right here. This is do good so God will accept you. It's just, there's just no life there. None whatsoever. And all that's going to happen is it's going to rot, it's going to die, or, or it's just fake. It's just fake and there's no life to it at all. By the way, the sad news is, is this is the picture of North American evangelical Christianity. Just do better. Be better. Try harder. John would say this has nothing to do with the lavish love of God on his children. You see, the picture of the gospel is more like this. And you look at it and you go, well, that's pretty wimpy. Uh Uh-huh. It really is. I mean, if you compare the two, this one's way more impressive, right? It's way more sturdy. It's shiny. You know, you could hang stuff on it, put a Christmas star on the top and get presents. I mean, you could do something. What are you going to do with this? It's kind of wimpy, right? One of the fruits just fell off. All right, that's patience probably right there. (laughs) By the way, let me just help you here. If you're a new Christian, you know not to pray for for patience, right? Because if you try to manufacture patience, you know what's going to happen? You can't manufacture fruit. Fruit is produced. It's not manufactured. So if you're like, dear God, help me be more patient, you're going to get four flat tires on the way to work this week. You'll be driving down the road. And then you're going to get out and be like, God, why? And he's like, you asked for it. Amen. That's how that works. Your other option is this. You think... The thing about this little wimpy tomato plant is this, that it's real. It's real. There's no performance. There's no pretending. that There's actually real life here. And it may not be impressive, but it's miraculous. It is miraculous. And that's the life of the Christian. Your life might not be impressive. I've seen your Facebook. It's not, okay? It's not that impressive. But if you're in Christ, it is miraculous because that which once was dead is now alive. And what happened is there was this little seed. By the way, scientists cannot reproduce this. They cannot recreate this. They can't make something produce life that did not have life. You just can't. Only God can do that. And they took this little seed. They took this little seed and they buried it down in some soil. And from our perspective, it died. And it broke open. And you thought, nothing's happening. You look at the top of the soil for, for a long time, days and days and days, and you think, nothing's happening. And then all of a sudden, this one little tiny baby little shoot goes, boop. And makes its way out. And then, not overnight, but over time, real life happens. And you know what happens from that little seed? It's only going to become what, it, what it's genetically predispositioned to become. It's gonna, it's, tomatoes are going to be not manufactured. They're going to be produced. And, I mean, and, and it is a miracle. And this is what it means to be in Christ. That you would die to yourself like that little seed. That you would lay down your life and say, it's over. And I want, I want the, the genetic predisposition of God implanted into me, the righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ. And then, not overnight, but over time, the fruit of the Spirit, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control begin to come out of us. And the only reason why is because the Spirit is in us. That the fruit of the Spirit is the way we act, but the root of the Spirit is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the difference. That's the difference. See, see, see what manner of love the Father has lavished upon us. That ordinary, average, jacked up, wretched, blackened, hearted sinners like those of us here could be called the children of God, and that is what we are for anyone who would admit that they're a sinner. Say, okay, God, I've tried to do it my own way, and that's not working. I'm ready for you to be Lord of my life that would believe that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, it counted for you. Some of you thought it just counted for the good people. There are no good people. Some of you thought it couldn't count for you because you've been so bad. Some of you thought you didn't need it because you're pretty good. None of those things are true. That when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he said, it is finished. And he meant that the payment for your sin has been paid for. 
So you admit you're a sinner. You believe that when Christ died on the cross, it counted for you. And then see, you confess him as Lord. You say, okay, Jesus, I'm turning over control, and you are the Lord of my life. I'm not the Lord of my life anymore. And in that moment, the seed of the Holy Spirit is planted inside of you. And over time, not overnight, but over time, like little children that grow up to be like their dad, you will grow up to be more and more and more like him. And you will begin to produce fruit because the Spirit lives in you. Today I want you, I want to give you the opportunity to get off of this performance trap of trying to be good and try hard. The message is not God is good and you're bad. Keep trying. See you next week. That is not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is you're not that good. It's not even that you're that bad. You're actually dead in your transgressions. And God sent his son on a rescue mission to save you and to bring you back to life and have a miracle happen in you. Not to manufacture behavior, but to produce fruit in your life. For anybody that would say, okay, I want to be loved. I want to receive the love of God poured out in His Son, Jesus Christ. And again, this is as easy as ABC. It's as simple as ABC. Admit that you're a sinner. Believe when Jesus died on the cross, it counted for you, and you confess Him as Lord and Savior. Would you please bow your heads where you are and close your eyes, not because that's some kind of mystical or magical position, but just to... This might be the only time in your whole week that you've got a couple seconds just to really reflect on the truth of the gospel. And if there's anybody in here today and you would say, yep, that's me, that right now for the very first time I'm ready to admit that I'm a sinner, that I believe when Christ died on the cross, it counted for me. And I want to confess him as Lord and Savior. Then you just tell him right where you are. There are no magical prayers. There's no incantations. You don't have to repeat after me. You just tell your heavenly Father that you now have access to, that you want to stand with confidence before for him, not because of how good you are, but because of the good work of Christ on the cross. And if that's you, if you're ready to become a Christian, to be saved, to surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and you just told him those things, then would you just lift your hand where you are and say, God, that's me. That's what I want to do. Amen. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, God, I thank you so much that you loved us so much that you did not send us just some kind of a performance evaluation, but you sent us your Son, Jesus Christ. God, I pray that we would experience the lavish love of the Father, the excessive love of the Father. God, just, just loads and loads and loads of love of you poured out through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would take every one of us out of the rat race of evangelical Christianity where we think it's about pretending and performance, and we could be real, we could abide in you as you abide in us. And with the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us and empowering us and saturated with the gospel of Jesus Christ, can we live like your children because that is what we are. We pray this in the good, strong name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, would you please stand as we respond? We respond around here. Here's why we sing at the end. You know why we sing? Because he deserves it. Because he's worth it. That's what worship is. That means he's worth it. We're going to sing the Lord's Prayer. And the reason we're going to sing it is because it starts out this way. Our Father. When Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray and he started out with our Father, it freaked them out, man. They were like, no, oh, we can't call him that. That's exactly what we call him through Christ. Our Father. So we're going to join our voices. We're going to sing. Um, we're going to bring our first and our best, our tithes and our offerings. If you're a regular here, you can do it electronically. You can do it in the giving boxes, however you want to do it. Because he first loved us by giving us his best. And then the altars are always open. It's a great place for you to come and cast your cares or cast your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Let us respond.